Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 321. Today is November 1st, 2020. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, market volatility is back in the news again. And that's no doubt because we're just a day or two ahead of the presidential election and we're seeing a second wave of COVID hitting the economy. Well, I can't predict the future and I'm not here to tell you what to do, but in this episode, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing with my investments. And if you're following along with my alerts and blog posts over at investablewealth.com, then you know that I'm already in this market. So is this a time to panic and sell or is this an opportunity to buy? If you look at the price action volume of all the major indexes and then even dig down into the different sectors of the economy, you'll see that as these prices are coming down, institutional investors are not selling in a panic, but what they're doing is is that they are selectively rebalancing their portfolios. They're selling out of the tech sector and they're moving in and buying in to more of the value stocks or the stocks that have underperformed through this year of COVID. And you can determine that in a number of ways, but we'll just talk about a couple very simple ones here that you can do at home. Pull up a chart of the NASDAQ, and the NASDAQ tends to be more technology sector-based and more growth and momentum-based than, say, the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the Russell 2000 or the S&P 500. So the NASDAQ is our barometer for tech and for growth stocks. So pull up a chart of the NASDAQ. Look at it over these last six months or so. Since the COVID bottom on March 23rd until about September 2nd, the NASDAQ nearly went up in a straight line. Oh, it had some pullbacks here and there. It had a pullback in June. But for the most part, it's been straight up through September 2nd. But in September is when we've seen this rebalancing taking place from the institutional investors. The NASDAQ dropped down and put in a low on September 23rd, and that took the NASDAQ back to its previous high in mid-July. At that point, the NASDAQ was trading below its 50-day moving average. It was about halfway between its 50- and 100-day moving average. It put in the bottom for September, and over the next three weeks or so, it started to rise, forming a hook chart pattern. But the peak of that hook came on October 12th. That's when the recovery started to fail. And then over the next two and a half weeks, the NASDAQ dropped down to its 100-day moving average. Now, during that same time period, look at the Russell 2000. And this isn't a perfect analogy, but I'm going to use the Russell 2000 as a placeholder for value stocks. The Russell 2000, everybody thinks of it as small cap stocks, but in reality, if you dig down to it, yes, you'll find that it is, by definition, it is the smaller cap stocks. But a large percentage of the Russell 2000 consists of banks and financial type institutions. And these are companies that over the last two years have been very much drastically underperforming the overall markets and and certainly vastly underperforming the high-flying tech and momentum stocks of the NASDAQ. And the banking and the financial and these other sectors that have been hit very severely uh, by COVID, and you might step back here a second and say, well, why would banks be hit by COVID? It isn't the, the banks themselves, but the banks obviously lend and have liabilities associated with all the service sector. All the small business in America tends to be service sector related. It's the service companies that have been hardest hit by COVID. So your local restaurant or your local dry cleaners, they're not listed on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. So you're not going to see the price fluctuations of those companies. But what you will see is the price fluctuation of the banks, 
which have loaned to those companies and which have liability exposure to that service sector industry. So that's why the Russell 2000 is a pretty good proxy for what I want to talk about. And while it has obviously done better since the March lows of the the major hysteria of COVID, it has drastically underperformed the NASDAQ and has really been flat since the summer, or it had been anyways. The Russell 2000, the small cap stocks, looked like they were getting better into the summer. And then from about August through that September peak, when the Dow and the S&P 500 and particularly the NASDAQ were hitting all-time record highs, the Russell 2000 was pretty much doing nothing. It was stagnant all through August. And then it dipped and it dipped harder than the general market as we saw that September decline. But since then, since about September 23rd or 24th, the Russell 2000 has not only started to move up and to the right, but it's also showed much greater relative strength and it's outperformed the S&P 500 over these past four weeks or so. Now, I'm not saying that it hasn't come down because it did. It, you know, it peaked a couple weeks ago and it's coming down, but its rate of decrease is less than the rate of decrease on the NASDAQ. This is one bit of evidence to show that institutional investors are rebalancing their portfolios. They're selling off of their high tech and they're starting to move a portion of that into these smaller cap companies, into the service sector, into banking and finance, and into these value stocks. This is also something that's evident in the yield of the 10-year treasury. Pull up a chart of the 10-year treasury and what it shows you is totally in conflict with the fear and panic and the hysteria that you see when you watch the media news. The media is telling you that there's all types of election uncertainty, that there's going to be riots and all types of political consequences over this election, civil disobedience, and you know COVID is coming back where all the countries in Europe are shutting down, all this hysteria about how bad things are. And yet, if you look at the true barometer of market volatility... And I'm not talking about gold or silver, Bitcoin, or any of those other things. I'm talking about really what drives the day-to-day economy. It's interest rates. And whenever there's a panic or whenever there's a major fear of a stock market correction, institutional investors sell their stock holdings, they sell their equities, and they buy U.S. government treasuries. Because U.S. government treasuries are considered the benchmark the real gold-gold standard of the modern-day financial system. And it doesn't matter whether you're trading equities in Tokyo or in Berlin, the gold standard that everyone uses is the U.S. Treasury. And so if we look at 10-year Treasury yields and how they've been impacted over this COVID crisis, as you would expect, the yields started to collapse in February, they dropped down to a low in mid-April, and then they started to stabilize and try to recover That fell apart again in August, just about almost to the day, one month ahead of the September pullback in the stock market. That's when the 10-year Treasury put in its absolute low over this COVID hysteria period. At that point, the 10-year Treasury had dropped to its, I believe, lowest point in all of history. It's really mind-boggling. It dropped down to about 51 basis points. That's 0.51%. And from that August 2nd low, Till today, the 10-year Treasury has been rising, and it even rose this week when the market was going down. And although it's not as high as the midsummer peak that it put in during the first week of June, it's headed in that direction. Right now, it's sitting right around 86 basis points. In June, it got up to, I think, right at 90. 
The point in this is not so much the nominal value, but the direction of the movement. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is telling us that since the beginning of August, institutional investors have less fear and are moving out of the gold safe standards of Treasuries and putting that into more risk-on, more risk-variable assets, a la things like the stock market and investing in private businesses and investing in real estate. Have you noticed all the mergers and acquisitions that have gone on in the last three to six months? These are not only things that have taken place in the public markets, but also a lot of private deals have gotten done. You wouldn't have these acquisitions taking place if large institutional investors didn't think the economy was getting better. So a key and easy way to track that is that rising 10-year treasury. And what's really interesting to note on this, and again, this has to do more with a moving average than with the actual nominal value of the treasury, because uh, treasury rates, as you know if you're paying attention to this, they've been coming down since the end of 2018 when the Federal Reserve changed their policy of raising interest rates. And so while rates have been following this last couple years, the 10-year Treasury has been below its 10-week moving average for, oh, I don't know, probably since January of 2019. And right now we're getting to the point where it's closing back in on that. And it'll be interesting to see if it has enough momentum where it will rise up above its 10-week moving average. And if it does, I think that will really seal the deal to show that we're going into an expanding economy for 2021. So I share this information with you to give you an idea of what I've been thinking, what I've been watching over the last couple months. And these are the primary reasons that I've ignored the headlines and I've decided to buy into the COVID-90 portfolio. Because I think that regardless of who the president ends up being at the end of this week or even if we don't know till January, what really matters is that COVID is waning. We're either going to get herd immunity or we're going to get a vaccination or we're going to get other medical treatments that reduce the death rate of COVID. And I don't have to have a crystal ball to predict this because this is already what we've seen take place. Look at the amount of people that were infected with COVID in March and look at the death rate. And now today, again, look at the number of people that have either had COVID or currently have it and look at the death rate the death rate has drastically come down. It's because the oldest and the frailest and the least healthy, those that were most susceptible to the virus, well, they've already passed on. That's part of building the herd immunity. And the other aspect of it is that it's less of an unknown. The medical practitioners are better able to treat the illness so that less people die. And in a lot of cases, it means that they just offer less treatment a la not putting people on respirators where they only have a 50-50 chance of living. So in spite of the spike in COVID cases, we're seeing less people die from it, and we're also seeing less draconian methods of the government shutting down local businesses and services. All the government will still meddle in this, and they're still going to impose restrictions, but there's no way we're going back to the absolute brutal lockdowns that we saw in March, April, and May of this past year. So the devastating effects of COVID are waning. They're on the declining side. At the same time, the Federal Reserve has said they're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates until 2023. 
they're prepared to take their balance sheet up to $10 trillion. And if you read between the lines and you see all the things that they're doing and talking about mimicking other countries that have done 100-year bonds or what we're currently seeing now with Japan, which is getting away from negative interest rates and actually going with just maintaining near zero interest rates, but offering the banks and the lending system bonuses for providing loans to people and then backing it up by central bank guarantees, that's what you're going to see the Federal Reserve do. So we're talking low interest rates, easy money. And then, of course, we're going to get more stimulus spending in 2021. If we get a President Biden, we're probably going to get a lot more stimulus than if we get a re-election of Trump. But in either case, once the presidential dust has settled, members of Congress and members of the Senate ultimately are going to pass some type of stimulus, whether it's a Democrat or Republican that's in the White House, because politicians love spending money. And they'll argue about the finer points of things, but once the presidential office is a, a reality for the next four years, the Senate and the Congress will get together and they'll put together a stimulus spending package because they want the power and they want the money. So 2021 is going to be a major improvement in the service sector. That's going to drive up, I believe, stock prices, particularly in these value sectors. COVID will be dissipating. Money is going to be cheap and readily available. That's what I've been saying for a long time, and that's why I've been formulating what stocks I wanted to buy for the post-COVID recovery. If you go back and you reference Wellsteading Podcast episode 311, that was recorded on April 20th. So when we were still in the depths of the COVID crisis, I talked in episode 311 about rebalancing your portfolio coming out of a crisis. And a lot of people thought I was talking about specifically buying that dip when we were in the midst of COVID. And, and I wasn't because really in a situation like that, it's not a strategy. You can pretty much go out and buy virtually anything. Just put all your money in the S&P 500 or any index. Whenever you have a drawdown of you know 30% over a period of weeks, you don't have to get real sophisticated with your recovery strategy. You can pretty much just buy the dip and you recover from it. So I was talking more broadly about not specifically buying an index, but picking individual stocks in sectors that had been significantly beat up, but showed potential for recovery. And a big part of this strategy is risk reward. And so this is why you even now don't see me jumping in and buying cruise lines or airline companies. Yes, you know, ultimately, I think Princess Cruise Line and Carnival and these other cruise ships, uh, the ones that have good balance sheets, they're likely to survive and, and prosper. And the airlines, you know, things like Delta Airlines, Southwest, it's very unlikely that they're going to go out of business. However, these companies have major financial obligations. They have a huge amount of sunk capital in not only physical assets, things like big expensive aircraft and these large cruise ships. And it's not only the capital invested in them, but the ongoing maintenance that has to be done to keep those ships and those aircraft worthy for travel. And then not only just the big infrastructure, but then all the human capital, all the pilots and all the attendants and all the maintenance staff and the ports or the airports that they're affiliated with, just this huge amount of human capital and all these employees that either have to be maintained or if they're fired, you have to you know hire people back and you just can't get people off the street to fill these positions. So from a risk reward potential, I'm avoiding things that I do think have a lot of sunk capital. And although I do believe they're likely to recover, I just think there's lower hanging fruit. 
And so that's what formulated the 90 stocks that I have in what I'm calling the COVID-90 portfolio. A lot of people that are surprised that I invested in so many stocks. I've always been a proponent for holding, say, 20 to 30 stocks. That way, you don't have all your eggs in one basket. If you own 20 stocks, that means that each of those positions only represent 5% of your overall portfolio net worth. If you own 30 stocks, you've now reduced that down to only 3%. So you're mitigating risk through diversification. Now, the reason that a few years ago, I would have limited my holdings to 20 or 30 stocks is because of the drag and the friction you get because of transaction costs. You know, you were paying some type of a transaction cost, even if you're going through a discount broker, they were going to be charging you 5 or $10 every time you bought or sold a stock. Well, the trend of gradually reducing transaction fees at discount brokers has gotten to the point in the last year and a half or so where it's zero. And so there's virtually no resistance or no friction loss to trading fees. And so in the past where I would have bought 20 or 30 stocks, well, now I don't see any reason not to buy 50 or 100 stocks, assuming that they fit into the strategy that I'm, I'm trying to you know, put together in the portfolio. But since I'm not paying any transaction fees or very little minor you know, junk fees, then owning a large percentage of stocks makes a lot more sense now than it did three years ago. And so that's the number one reason why you see me owning 90 stocks in the COVID-90 portfolio, as opposed to just owning 20 or 30 that I would have done a couple years back. But the strategy is no different. So in the past where I would have been limited and only been able to purchase one or two stocks in a particular sector, well, now I've taken that same strategy. I've still picked those sectors and I've tried to pick the best stocks. But instead of just owning one or two and having a three to 5% in each of those stocks, well, now maybe I'm looking at that sector and I'm buying four or five stocks, but I have less than 1% in any one of those stocks. That's the way to mitigate risk through diversification. And then the essence of this portfolio, like I said, it's stocks that have not fully recovered from the hysteria of COVID. And so a lot of it tends to be stocks that are either in the service sectors or are somehow ancillarily affiliated with the service sectors. And so while I'm not buying stocks that specifically operate airlines, I might be buying stocks of smaller manufacturing companies whose primary customers or certainly their large customers may be the airlines or something affiliated with that. But the key here is that not all of their business is affiliated with the airlines. And so unlike a Delta, which only has one business model, right, to fly people, if you invest in a company that, say, manufactures high-end aviation equipment and they happen to sell it to the airlines, maybe 30 or 50% of their sales of this device or this component goes into the airlines, well, they still have 50 or more percent of their business that's also selling into the defense sector or selling into the communications sector or selling into the robotics or the information technology sector. And so these companies have a diversified enough business portfolio and strategy that they continue to have cash flow coming in now. They're not on the verge of going bankrupt. They're not on any type of liquidity watch list. These are, again, companies that generally, although they've been hit by COVID, they're likely to weather the storm and then not only weather the storm, but also have their stock performance be able to outperform the general market. That's what I'm looking for in coming out of this crisis. You know, what I just described to you is not perfect and does not describe 
every particular stock in that portfolio. For example, I did go in and, and dip back into some of the old stodgy tech companies. They don't necessarily fit that model, but these are companies like Intel and Cisco, which are really good companies. They've taken a beating because of COVID and some other problems within their organizational structure. But again, they're big, solid companies. They're the big you know, dogs of the Dow. I think generally they're going to recover and pull through this just fine as the economy improves. And then finally, if I can really just wrap it up by giving you examples of really the essence of the COVID-90 portfolio. And when I talk about improving service sector, this is what I mean. One of the stocks I purchased has a ticker symbol of X-Ray. That's X-R-A-Y. Their main business is developing a manufacturing and marketing products to dentists. So things like dental x-ray equipment and fluoride treatments and, you know, all the ancillary consumable products that dentists use. Well, you can imagine because of COVID, all the people that haven't been going to the dentist, and this was particularly hard hit in like, say, March through June, you know, a lot of dental offices just totally shut down. And so it would be no surprise that a company that sold into that sector would be seeing some really hard times and a big impact to their sales and their profits. And so right now, even though that stock X-Ray is off of its March bottoms, in fact, it's up significantly, probably by about 50% from its March lows, it's still significantly down from its pre-COVID highs. In fact, it's even down from the rapid recovery it made over the summer from its, its June peak where it was trying to form a hook and barb pattern, it fell apart there and it consolidated, and it's pretty much been consolidating there since June. In fact, the reason I picked this stock is because this is really, really emblematic of the core of the COVID-90 portfolio. And if you go over to investablewealth.com and look under my alert and blog section there, you'll see in three separate posts on three different days when I bought into these stocks, I listed each of the stocks I purchased. So there's not one list of all 90 stocks, but there are three different posts that do list the 90 stocks. And I think it was on the last day of that post, I put up a chart that showed a consolidation of the COVID-90 stocks and how they have performed through this COVID period. And what you see is, you know, stability in January and February, and then obviously the big March-April drop where they lost, you know, in excess of 50% of their value. And then they started to recover. They generally recovered into June. And then that hook pattern failed at that point, and they've been consolidating over these past four or five months. And when you get a long consolidation like that, again, it's showing that all the weak hands, all the panic has sold out. And the institutional investors are holding, they're not selling. And so you can't be sure that it won't go lower, but it tends to be that there's a floor there in that consolidation. It's building all that support. You get the collective momentum and these stocks go on to not only hit their previous peaks, but they go on to make all-time new record highs. That's what I'm banking on for the overall COVID-90 portfolio. You can see it in that consolidated chart I have over at my website. Or you can simply bring up a chart of X-Ray, and it's really a classic example of what I'm talking about. And so here's the point in all this. People have been starting to go back to the dentist, and at some point, they will return in the regular numbers. And whether that's March of 2021 or July of 2021 or February of 2022, you know, I can't predict the future. I don't know exactly when the traffic in dental offices will go back and get to its normal pre-COVID levels. But I can be 
about as sure as I can about anything that we will get back to that level of activity at dental offices. And this kind of gets back to the comparison between, you know, buying a stock like Delta Airlines or buying a, a stock like Carnival Cruise Lines. Yeah, I think the airlines and I think the cruise line industry, the whole hospitality industry will get back to where it was headed. In fact, I've bought a lot of stocks affiliated with like the hotels, for example, Marriott and Hilton. But what I really like about a stock like X-Ray is that even though it's focused in one medical aspect of the dental industry, it has a much more higher probability and, a, and to me, a much lower risk potential than investing in an airlines or a cruise line ship company. We know people are going to go back to their dental hygienist and get their teeth cleaned, and they're going to get x-rays, and they're going to get their cavities filled, and they're going to get their six-month checkups, and they're going to have dentures and braces, and all these different dental services are going to come back online at some point. You can know that with almost 100% surety. You just don't know exactly when. And so if you're a patient enough and a disciplined investor, you're willing to take the shot now to go in and buy this type of a stock or that whole COVID-90 type portfolio where you're getting a broad diversification, knowing that in the future, these services are going to come back in and companies that focus on these services are going to see their sales and profits get back up to their previous COVID levels. So this is really the, the poster boy for the overall COVID portfolio. I'll give you a couple other names that uh, track this general philosophy as well. Uh, and another one would be like, like Bosch Healthcare, ticker symbol BHC. You know, Bosch used to be Bosch and Lom, the uh, contact people. Well, same basic problem with their business. They sell their primary products to ophthalmologists. And so not as many people have been going in and, and getting contact lenses. Well, their stock has been depressed. And so pre-COVID, when it was selling for, you know, more than $28 a share, well, today it's only selling for like $16.50. There's a great deal of upside, I believe, to a stock like Bosch. And again, look at its chart pattern. It's different, but similar to what we saw with X-Ray. Another stock that fits in this category is Harmonics, uh, ticker symbol HAE. They serve the sector of, you know, blood collection, blood transfusion, those type consumable products well, you know, elective surgeries are down. You need less blood transfusions. You have less people going to donate or sell plasma. So that has affected sales and profitability for this company. But again, I don't think it's going to be that way forever. Another company, Smith & Nephew, ticker symbol SNN. They're in the medical industry. They make implants, things used for orthopedic surgeries, you know, hip and knee replacements. Well, again, a lot of that elective surgery has been postponed or delayed. So their stock has suffered. I think they're going to recover. Integer Holdings is another medical company. They specialize and service the cardiology and vascular side of the medical system. So again, elective surgeries for heart transplants and bypass surgeries, a lot of those things have been postponed. Pre-COVID, this stock was selling at $90. Today, it's selling at $58. I think there's upside to this company and all the others I invested in, in the COVID-90 portfolio. Just real quickly, and I won't get into specifics on these, but a couple others to think of, and they're out of the healthcare sector. I don't want you to think that everything's in healthcare. As I mentioned before, I did buy into Hilton and I bought into Marriott because I think the hotel and hospitality sector will improve. 
But for the same reasons I talked about the airlines and the cruise lines, I didn't want to just focus on big capital intense and employee intense companies. And so looking at the hospitality and hotel sector, I also invested in companies like TripAdvisors and Eventbrite and Yelp and even Lyft. So I think there's a great deal of opportunity. I think this week's pullback and maybe any turbulence we get into or just on the other side of the election, I think these are all great buying opportunities. Go to investablewealth.com. Take a look at my blog and alert section, the commentary section there. Flip through it. All the stocks I purchased are there. I'm not recommending these specifically to you. I don't know your individual situation. I'm just telling you, this is where I've put my money, and this is where I think it's going to appreciate as we go into 2021. Well, hey, as always, thanks for listening. Until the next episode, this is John Pagliano wishing you the very best returns.